Welcome to Living Truth Radio, a ministry of Living Truth Christian Fellowship with Pastor Michael Lance. It is our goal to build up believers and reach out with God's truth to all people. Now here's today's message with Pastor Michael. All the verses about worry are in the Bible are there because we worry. That's why they're written. And Paul, who wrote Philippians 4, 6, and 7, even had times of worry and unrest. And if you're a worrier, the reason that you worry is because you care. My mother still worries about me. She'd prefer that I stayed home 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Just never leave the house again. That way you'll be safe. I said, Mom, you got to live. And I went over to Jerusalem and I've done some other. You're a world traveler now, aren't you, Michael? You can see the Italian vein begin to quiver. You're a world traveler. <laughs> Said, I'm in God's hands, Mom. Right? <laughs> now, when we worry about our children, any, any moms here worry about their kids? Okay. And are some of your kids older and you still worry about them? See, if you worry, it means you care. Now, if you're always worried about yourself, that's one thing. Now you got other issues. And we can set up a counseling appointment for that. But if you're worried about others, it means you care about them. And you know, when we're losing sleep over things that we might be kind of chomping on or they're running through our heads, the best thing we can do is, look, we're going to go through this, but then we have to give them to God because I can't protect my child out there in the world. I can't save people's souls that I'm worried about. If someone's got an illness, I can't heal their illness, but I can bring them to God. And that's what I try to do with my worries, and I hope you'll try to do that too. Cast them to Him because He cares for you. Cast your anxiety. But Paul was definitely worried, and he said, look, I had no rest, verse 13, from my spirit. And then he mentions, we are the fragrance of Christ to God. How many of you guys have ever been dragged into one of those fragrance stores by your wife? Now, um, we've done this, honey, and my wife's on the front row, so I've got to be very careful. So guys, pray for me. But anyway, I bought stuff too. There's a men's section in these stores. Now, I can't get over the little girly bag that they hand you. But so I went in there, and I used to, you try out stuff. What do you think of that? You know, I had to you know, come in touch with my masculinity right before I walked in, but hey, it was all right. So, and so here's, here's the image, and I preached this to you when we were in 2 Corinthians. I want, when someone meets me, to ask this question. What is that? And I want to say, fragrance by Christ. <laughs> now, if there's any entrepreneurs in, all I want is 10%. Yeah. <laughs> No, this is a spiritual thing. And the fragrance is to God, but it also goes off to others. I want you to see how this works out. He says, we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, 16. To one, those who are perishing, an aroma from death to death. And when we walk by them, they don't like it because the gospel tells them they're in trouble. To the other, those who are being saved, an aroma from life to life. And who is adequate for these things? For we are not like many, peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. Go to 2 Corinthians 7. Uh, The good news is Titus did show up. The good news is the Corinthians decided to follow through with the financial gift. The good news was the church was okay. Paul had written them a difficult letter and they were repentant. Look at 2 Corinthians 7, 5. For even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest. 
We were afflicted on every side, conflicts without, fears within. But God, who does what? Comforts the depressed. He comforted us by the coming of Titus. He showed up. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted in you. As he reported to us your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. Paul had written this difficult letter back to the book of Acts, and he was wondering how they were going to receive it. He was, going to, he was wondering, are the Corinthians going to keep going in Christ? Is all lost? He had spent, I think, 18 months in Corinth. Can you imagine? A year and a half of your life investing in people, and now you're wondering, have they embraced false doctrine? Are they all bailing on their Christian faith? And he wrote a severe letter. And you know what the Corinthians did with that letter? They decided to repent. They decided, we're wrong. And that's what Paul was on pins and needles about. And if you've been there before, you know. You send an email. Should I? Should I? Should I? And then you wait for a response. That can be hard. By the way, I don't recommend those kinds of letters by email. Usually there's sometimes regret after you hit that button, right? Sometimes a face-to-face encounter. Now, if all you got is a letter, then that's what you got to do. Sometimes that is the right thing to do. You need wisdom. But that's why Paul was worried. But all of a sudden, Titus showed up and he said, you know what? He said, these people have longed for you, Paul. They're mourning. They're zealous for you. They knew they were wrong. They received the correction. Isn't it neat when someone just says, I was wrong? It's so hard to do. Isn't it, folks? When you're caught and you know you were wrong, but you know what? It usually ends there because so, usually we're used to people going like this. Well, it wouldn't happen if, if this and he and the serpent and the woman you gave me and I wouldn't have ate it, but it was shiny. And we come up with all this stuff. And when somebody just says, all right, I blew it. I'm sorry. You, you go, what? Oh, well then, okay. I guess I have to forgive you now. Why'd you do that? I was hoping we could fight for him. <laughs> so when we had gone through the districts, Acts 20, verse 2, this is the districts of Macedonia. I mentioned Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea are included. And had given much exhortation, he came to Greece. See the phrase exhortation? It may say encouragement in some of your versions. It's the word parakaleo. It literally means to strengthen, to come alongside, or to strengthen by consolation. A good way to think of parakaleo here, exhortation, is strengthening words. Strengthening words. Now, encouragement is all, not always nice. If you are going to be a strengthener of people, the main way we get strengthened is how? Through the Word of God. Is the Word of God always nice and comfortable to hear? No, sometimes it's like, Ooh! and you go, ouch, But ultimately, what does it do? It strengthens your faith. It builds you up. Sometimes it's so sweet, you know, it's the love and the grace of God in heaven and and hope, but sometimes it's something else. And exhortation and encouragement can have these differing uh, nuances because it's kind of the same thing. Strengthening words. I ask you, are you a strengthener? When you leave encounters behind, are you a strengthener of people? What's the opposite of strengthening words? Weakening words. When you leave the room, do people feel deflated? Right? Now, it doesn't mean you always have to be nice because the truth, faithful are the wounds of a friend, deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. So, truth 
builds up, it strengthens us, and that's what we need to do for others. We need to be a strengthener. Paul writes in Ephesians 4.29, he says, let no unwholesome word come out of your mouth except that which is good for, remember, edification, that it might impart grace to those who hear. That's the idea. I want to be, and, and look, I'm speaking to myself right now, I want to be a strengthener of people. I want to speak strengthening words into people's lives. Isaiah 35, 1 through 4 says, The wilderness and the desert will be glad. The Arabah will rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It will blossom profusely and rejoice with, re- with rejoicing and shout of joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. And they will see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. It says in Isaiah 35, 3, Encourage the exhausted, strengthen the feeble, Say to those with anxious heart, take courage, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. The recompense of God will come. He will save you. I think part of what we need to do for our children, grandchildren, other Christians who may uh, be struggling is say, you can make it. Because what he began in you, he will complete. And there he spent three months, that is in Greece. And I mentioned that it's probably in Corinth, Acts 20 verse 3. And when a plot was formed against him by the Jews, he was about to set sail for Syria. Paul was trying to make it for the Passover and that he would land at Syria, then go down south to Jerusalem. He determined to return through Macedonia. So Paul was getting ready to go for the Passover. But then just when he was about to board the cruise ship with his ticket, somebody said, hey, Paul, there's a bunch of people on the ship planning to kill you. Oh, I think I might want to reroute my travel plans. They were probably on the ship plotting to throw him overboard, kill him and throw him overboard. Paul heard about it by the grace of God and he said, you know what? I think we're going to go north. (laughs) I think we're going to reroute our travel plans. And he was accompanied by, look at this group of people in verse four. So Peter of Berea, think of the churches in this Macedonian region and in Asia Minor, the son of Pyrrhus and by Aristarchus and Secundus of the Thessalonians. They were from the area of Macedonia as well. From, uh, and Gaius of Derby and Timothy, remember he was from Lystra, and Tychicus and Trophimus of Asia, that's Asia Minor. Trophimus, Acts 21-29, was specifically from Ephesus. And if you add Luke and Paul, there were nine missionaries traveling together. All these different churches represented what a beautiful image of the body of Christ. This person from Lystra, this person from Ephesus, this person from Thessalonica, this person from this place, and they were all one in Christ. All probably converts that Paul had won. And guess what else they were doing? Each of them probably had a bag of money because they had all committed to this uh, offering for the the, uh, Jewish church and they were all probably represented the person that had been in charge of the offering. They were all together. They were with Paul. They rerouted their plans These, the rest that were traveling, had gone on ahead and were waiting for us. Luke includes himself. He's an eyewitness writing the account. They were going to rendezvous at Troas. And so Luke says, six, we sailed from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. That's the feast of Passover. So Paul spent Passover in Philippi with a wonderful Philippian church that he loved so much. But he wanted to be in Jerusalem because that's what the law said that he should do. And came to them at Troas within five days, and there we stayed seven days. So now they're at Troas. This is where Paul originally got the, the dream or the vision of the man from Macedonia. Come over to Macedonia and help us. And Paul got the vision for Europe. 
When he first went, it took him two days, but now it took five days to get back because the wind was not at their back. And so he's at Troas, this infant church, probably the last time he's going to get to talk to them, and they spent a wonderful week together. What did that week look like? Look at verse 7. You're going to get some insights into early Christian church services. And on the first day of the week, most scholars would conclude that Sunday. When we were gathered together, Luke is there writing, to break bread, that's probably a reference to the Lord's Supper or Communion, Paul began talking to them, intending to depart the next day. So he had to squeeze in as much as he could in this week, leaving the next day, and he prolonged his message until midnight. And all God's people said, no, no. You know, in some areas of the world, people travel for days to get to a church service, and the church service goes on for five or ten hours. And they want all they can get. We go 50 minutes and people say, oh, my Grand Slam, I was going to get the Grand Slam. I did it. not going to get two Grand Slams. What am I going to do? Actually, I can't get a Grand Slam. It's past the breakfast hour and I got to get a Mid Slam or I don't know. Right? Sometimes we can be kind of wimpy. And you say, well, why did Paul go on till midnight? Why do preachers do that? I don't know. It's a mystery. <laughs> but I can tell you this. I heard a story of a little girl sitting with her mom. This is some years ago. Pastors used to take off their watches and they would set them on the pulpit. And the little girl looked at her mom and said, Mommy, what does it mean when the pastor takes off his watch and sets it neatly on the pulpit? And the mother said, Absolutely nothing. <laughs> it means nothing. And so Paul preached and preached and preached and he was trying to squeeze everything in. Wonderful fellowship. They're in this upper room. They're breaking bread and, and Paul is trying to squeeze in every moment he can. He's, he knows he's going to leave other people behind to lead these churches. There in the upper room, verse 8, there were many lamps. These are first century oil lamps, more like torches. Would have been smoky up there. They're in this upper room. Where did Jesus give his last um, speeches and exhortations to his disciples? In an upper room. And so where we were gathered together, so many lamps, smoky. I'm sure a lot of people, extra people showed up. Paul's in town. Let's drink in as many as we can. And Sunday was a work day for these people. Sabbath was the rest day. So people probably worked during the day, and this was a Sunday night service. And so they're gathered. They would do communion. They would preach the word of God. That was, it was centered in that. And there was a certain young man, probably about 7 to 14 years old. We think he's probably a young teenager. His name was Eutychus. Eutychus was sitting on the windowsill. Now, I don't know if Eutychus was sitting on the windowsill because it was smoky or because the older people said, Eutychus, you sit in the windowsill. We want the comfortable. You're young. You could sit there. So he's sitting in the windowsill, drinking in the fresh air. But you know the, the torches? You know how sometimes you look at a fire and you kind of get a little sleepy? And you know, uh, Eutychus is about to fall asleep. And Eutychus is not the only person that's fallen asleep in church. The young, the old, I met somebody outside the church after the first service and he looked at me as an older, wonderful saint and he said, Michael, you were talking about me in church today, weren't you? He said, when you started mentioning people fall asleep, the ladies that I was with, they looked at me and they did you to kiss. Now I've had some thoughts in the past because this has been an experience that I have had. I look out there and I watch somebody doing the head bob and they're not doing the prayers at the wall of Jerusalem. Right? And I've been tempted to get those little oranges. 
put him up here. I'm an ex-baseball player, by the way. And just, you know, hit him. But I heard a story. <laughs> there was a lady. She was sitting with her husband. The husband was an elder in the church, and he fell asleep on her shoulder, and she elbowed him. And he woke up, and he stand up in the middle of the service and gave the benediction. He didn't know. He didn't know where he was, but anyway. I read one writer that I really respect, and he said, you know, he said, it's not people falling asleep in church that bothers me. He said, I sometimes wonder, because I know people have long work weeks, and some of you come here, and you've worked an all-night shift, and, and I'm not bagging on you just a little bit, but, uh, but look, he said, it doesn't concern me so much that people fall asleep in church. He says, sometimes I wonder when I'm looking at people who look awake if they're asleep in their souls. And Paul writes in Ephesians 5, Awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. In Romans 13, Paul says, It is time for you to awake from your sleep, for now our salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. And in Revelation 3, Jesus tells one of the churches, Wake up. Wake up. It's time to get busy. And the words uh, here as uh, he's sitting in the windowsill, seeking in, sinking into a deep sleep, middle of eight, is where we get the English word hypnosis. He was kind of in that hypnotic, you ever been there before? Looking at the fire, kind of smoky. Sermon's going on and on and on. I love Paul and all, but on and on and on. And, and finally, he, the verbs mean he was fighting it and he was nodding and fighting it. And as Paul kept on talking, he was overcome by sleep and fell down from the third floor and was picked up dead. And you go home and you, your loved one says, what happened at church today? Oh, well, it was an interesting service. Somebody fell out of the third story window and they were dead. Well, remind me never to go to that church. Right? There's Eutychus, right? Try, probably worked a long day. You know, they would start them early. You learned daddy's trade. You'd work. Maybe he was tired, but he didn't want to miss the service. And Sitting in the windowsill and <whistles> down goes Eutychus. And I think he may have fell head first. Can you imagine? You're in the middle of the church service, Paul's preaching, and one more point. Here's what preachers do. One more point is 20 more minutes. And one more thing, and Eutychus goes, <laughs> down he went. And all the people are like, <gasps> a collective gasp. Oh no, what are we going to find down below? And they made their way outside a outside stairwell, which they had in those days. Can you imagine the gasp? What are we going to find? And Paul went down and fell upon him. Look at verse 10. And after embracing him, he said, do not be troubled for his life is in him. Folks, this is no less than a resurrection. The medical doctor told you in the verse before he was dead. I don't know if he was, I don't know if they saw his mangled body, but Paul laid on him in the, in the uh, similar fashion that Elijah did it in 1 Kings 17. You can read about it later. Uh, Elisha did it in 2 Kings 4, both in the case of children, laid on their body, did some different details in the healing, and both children were resurrected. And in the, in the form of Old Testament prophets, Paul did the same thing, and Eutychus was alive. And Eutychus's name, guess what, means fortunate can you imagine he'd be introduced next time to somebody hey what's your name oh i'm eutychus what's that mean that's unique oh it means fortunate let me tell you about a church service i was at one day (laughs) fortunate and you know what as we are about to move into communion i want to tell you something 
You know, as Christians, we often talk about being blessed, and we should. We are blessed people. May I add something else to your list of how you describe yourself? Next time someone says, how you doing today? Say, fortunate. You know why? You are Eutychus. You say, I don't sleep in church. What are you talking about? No, I'm talking about the symbolism here because the symbolism to me is this. Eutychus fell. Sin has caused the fall. The wages of sin is death. Jesus Christ came down from heaven, the upper room, if you will, and breathed his life into me while I was dead in my sins and trespasses. He made me alive. And Paul, in some way, we don't want to push it too far, is walking in the footsteps of the Messiah. And he's human. But God has allowed a moment for a miracle to happen to speak a reality. Jesus Christ saves from the ultimate fall. You see, people are fallen left and right into an abyss from which ultimately there is no return. And Jesus came down he saw us mangled on the ground because of sin and what it does to us. And he, he breathed on us. As a matter of fact, he took our place. You see, he took the fall that I might be lifted up to life. I would submit to you, you and I are fortunate. Now, I'm going to ask the ushers to pass the elements of communion. And I want you to look at verse 12. And they took away the boy alive and were greatly comforted. He went home alive. Remember when Jesus told the story in Luke 15, he said, through telling the story of the prodigal son, for this son of mine was dead and he is alive again. He was lost and now he's found. That's what Jesus does for people. He makes us alive. I want to ask you, um, as the elements go by, if you're a Christian, we want to invite you to the Lord's table. Hold the elements and we're going to take them together. We're going to spend a few moments just reflecting on that. And as they go around, I'm going to tell you one more quick um, story. Yesterday we had a men's breakfast and Sammy C., Elder Sammy, was preaching on John chapter 4. And he, told, he reminded us of the woman at the well and how Jesus made a special trip to Samaria to minister to her. And the story says that she had been married five times and the guy she was with was not her husband. And so Jesus said, go call your husband. She said, I don't have a husband. He said, that's right. You've had five and the one you're with is not your husband. You've spoken correctly. And I was listening to a Jewish Messianic pastor who said, you know, in that culture, women could not divorce their husbands. Only men could do that. It was fully within their right to do it, but a woman was stuck. And so we often think of her as maybe she was an ancient Elizabeth Taylor Divorced and married, divorced and married, divorced and married. Going from relationship to relationship, maybe something like a woman of the night. But you know what? I think we need to see something else with the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, who Jesus promised the, the water of life to. I think she was a rejected woman. I think five husbands decided to divorce her. And I think she may have come to the well that day thinking, you know what, is anybody ever going to love me? Am I ever going to have somebody have my back? And we often focus on the woman's sin, and Jesus does point out what she's done wrong. But I think she was probably a rejected little sheep, and Jesus had to go through Samaria because he knew that she needed him. And he told her about living water. Amen? What a beautiful Savior we have. He goes out and seeks out 
straying and rejected sheep. Maybe you can resonate with that. Maybe you've been rejected and you're wondering, does God love me? He does. And he'll come looking. And you're here for a reason. If you don't know Christ, maybe you're hesitating to take the elements of communion. Come to know him. Trust in him as your Savior and Lord. Ask him into your life. Say, Jesus, save me. You don't have to have perfect words. Save me. I turn from my sin. I believe you died on the cross. I believe you rose from the dead. Trust in him today. Go home alive, Eutychus. Amen? And then you can say, I am a fortunate person. All right, God bless you. If you would like to listen to this message, or if you would like more information about the ministry of Living Truth, please visit our website at livingtruthcorona.org. That's livingtruthcorona.org. Are there going to be times when you slow down? Are there going to be times when you're distracted? Are there going to be times when you fall on the track? Probably. Have you watched some of the Olympic races where in some of the longer races, even people that fell down in the race got back up and finished and in some cases won the race? That's what it means. It's not that you always have to be in the lead. It doesn't mean that you're not going to scrape your knee or face some adversity or have to pass through thresholds when everything in your mind, soul, body, and spirit wants to quit. But it is about pressing on and finishing well, the race that is set before us. And, you know, in Acts chapter 20, Paul picks up imagery that he loves to use. 1 Corinthians 9, Philippians 3, he uses running metaphors. If he wrote Hebrews, then it's also in Hebrews 12. And these Olympic images, these running metaphors are powerful because There's so many times when I don't want to exercise. There's so many times when everything in me wants to do everything but do it. But when I just fight it and get on the treadmill or do the right thing, despite how I feel, my body kind of catches up (laughs) and and it feels really good. And so that's what we have to do spiritually speaking. How much more spiritually they do it for a crown that perishes. We do it for a crown that endures to everlasting life. We do it because the crown is not just a picture of a physical crown. It's a crown of reward. And the reward, I believe, is going to be the people that we won to Christ and encouraged along the way. So may God bless you with those thoughts. And may you stay true to what God has called you to do. Even when you feel like quitting, it's always too soon to give up. So keep pressing on. Finish that race that God has called you to. He will be faithful, and he will see you to the end. God bless you. Thank you for listening to Living Truth Radio, and we will catch you next time on the program. Thank you for listening to today's program. Our mission is to get the truth of God's Word out. This is our passion. We want to impact as many people as possible, and we have an opportunity to expand this radio program, and we need you, the listener, to partner with us in prayer and in giving. You can give to our ministry through our website at livingtruthcorona.org. That's livingtruthcorona.org.